You know, uh, I had a, a phrase that uh, I want to kind of have us be thinking about, and it just goes two down, one to go. Two down, one to go. And you might be thinking, well, what's that about? Um, it's not the Stanley Cup play. You know, it's not the Stanley Cups because we know there's more games yet. And it's not the NBA Finals. There's still that going on. You might be thinking maybe it was the Belmont and the disappointing race that everyone was helping California Chrome would do, two and one, but that's not what it's about. The reason I say these words, two down, one to go, it has to do with regard to us. And how God has been working in our lives as a congregation. And I'm just so excited to share with you that as God has been at work, he's been working through you who have been so generous, so incredibly generous. We set out with three financial mile markers. I remember as I met with our, some of our uh, staff and our finance who works in that area and, and mentioned even as we worked the elders sticking through it is we had some mile markers coming up as we come to the end of the year. June 30th is the end of our fiscal year and we knew that we'd be taking some offerings and these offerings wouldn't be going. They weren't things that we budgeted for. They're really outside our budget and they're just offerings that you give generously to and one of them that we knew would come up was um, one of those mile markers were in April and in, in April we gave a gift to help the ministry of Teen Challenge they sang and then you responded and, and gave a gift at the end of the service gave more than what you gave to us you actually gave them $18,000 to Teen Challenge that Sunday morning and that was just a, a huge sense of, of, of affirmation to their ministry and, and, and that was so cool and so then in May we had another one of these mile markers coming up we as a local outreach team met I met with them back in February and we were planning as we come to the end of the year and you're always kind of go okay come to the end of the year and, and, and a couple of local, local outreach members said to me, one of the things we'd really like to do is give an offering to Mobile Hope, where Brian and Jill Dejewski have been serving. And, and to come around that ministry that we've been a part of for like 20 years in Maple Hill Estates, where they have been as a, a, a church, we've been there in the summers, we bring the, uh, many of their, uh, their kids to our Wednesday Night Adventure Club program, we are now sending people in there who are doing, helping um, mentor in, in training and teaching. We also have... Um, in, in that whole serving, um, helping them learn the English language, things such as that. And then and Brian and Jill uh, made a huge commitment, left their suburban home and moved into the mobile home park and, and bought a mobile home and are ministering their presence of Jesus there. And we thought, could we come around them and we were praying, could we give them a $20,000 gift? Could we do something like that? Could we come to the congregation outside our budget to help the ministry and so we took these funds and we gathered them and we took that offering last week and we were just, again, hoping for 20000 and, and And they have a $100,000 mile marker they have. They want to, it could build a community center if they can get there. And, um, and 80 people, over 80 people here, um, individuals and families, gave $46,000 to that ministry. And I just am so grateful. Are Brian and Jill sitting in here? They're right here. If you just, we're so grateful that God's doing to you guys. Thank you. And what's so exciting is Brian told me yesterday when I was talking to him about this is he said they're really only about 5,000 short of that marker that they had. And, and God's been doing such incredible things, and I'm so grateful for your generosity. So you go, what's the one to go? Well, the one to go is our own budget. <laughs> and then it's June 30th. Uh, we need to continue to take um, our offerings. About, I think about every Sunday is about 30000 and we're about $20,000 behind. So, just, so you know that. Uh, I only say that because I don't have any sense of concern or fear because I'm just 
we have lived for a number of years here just saying we'll take what God provides and we'll do the best with what he does. And so I just say that because that's the last mile marker and I wanted to share that with you. And then another thing I want to share with you is the incredible growth things that are going on here from just sense of ministry. I was in a... Um, our, our staff meeting last uh, Monday in the morning, and, and Steve and Shelley McKendry, who oversee our adult um, ministries, Shelley had mentioned kind of the exciting news that three small groups, groups coming together through the summer, have started the study of the Word of God, which is kind of unusual in a church. You're usually shutting them down. And, and some of these are just happening spontaneously. And then um, it was kind of fun because Joe Schroeder, who is over Wyzetta Women, which is the ministry to women in our church, she piped in and said, yeah, we have three also in our women's area that are starting up and and god's doing some neat things and and she said in fact i was on the phone with lifeway which gives us which we go through to get bible study curriculum and things like that and she said the lady said what's going on there most churches are shutting down their small groups you seem to be increasing them and we have requests from the community and from other churches for small groups in 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 bible studies in the summer could we send some of the people there and i said of course not no (laughs) because we're tight-fisted and it's about us. No. See, I, I share this with you because of what God is doing and what he's done through your hearts and your generosity and your participating with him. And people are taking steps of involvement and, and not just in, in financial giving, but using their gifts and serving in, in areas of ministry and people coming together to be the kind of community that helps them become what we always are talking about here. And that's taking our next step to know and to follow and become like Jesus Christ. And that's what we're about and so when we come to the last part of this, this series, A New Way to Pray, and we are looking at the Lord's Prayer, and we come to these last lines, this doxological statement, it's all centered on, it's all about you, God. And so as I was thinking about how do I introduce this message, it just seems so simple to say, it's kind of cool how God is working through us in a way where I think we're going, it's about you, God. We're learning how to do it in so many different ways. We're learning how to do it in our ministries. We're learning how to do it in worship together. Where we just bring it all and we, we just say, you know, this might, might be my particular favorite, but you know what? I'm going to enter in. I'm going to worship because it's all about you. And so we come to this thing and I go, you know, one of the things we've been talking about is, is life change is happening. And we see life change happening in people. But one of the things I, I spoke with um, Mike Brinkman, he's on uh, his sabbatical right now. And so I have not called him. He called me. So just so you know this. And he just said, Kevin, not only is life change happening, as he was looking at some of the things that were going on, he goes, we're becoming a church of real life changers. Not that we haven't been, but we're, we're seeing new things God's doing. We're, we're life changers. God's using you in the lives of others. And so I thank God for that. Let me pray. Father, we really want to be about you, seeing changes in our life, so that our life can be used allow you to change others. And so, God, I pray for soft hearts as we listen to these words. Speak to us, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, this new way to pray um, in, in this series, you know, is all about context, and I've been saying that, and I've been using really some of the context out of Luke when it, they come after seeing Jesus pray. But if you go to Matthew, and this is where we're going to kind of be today, is the Matthew portion of it. Um, the part of Matthew that's kind of interesting is the context is this. Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he's been teaching a number of different things, and one of the things he begins to teach about at one point is about prayer. A lot of times Jesus would answer questions, and then he would go into a talk, and I, I'm, I'm wondering if someone didn't ask something like that. And so then Jesus makes this statement, 
which I, I just think of the boldness and guts of Jesus. You know, you know, we always kind of meek and mild Jesus. He, he was the most courageous man that ever lived. He stands up and he goes, don't pray like the Pharisees. Now, I, I can't imagine, can you imagine me calling out certain people? Don't be like, I, that's a gutsy thing. You know, because when you do that, people aren't real happy. They're not going, yeah, I love what you're saying. He says, don't pray like the Pharisees. They stand up and what they do is they wear certain garbs and they pray in certain ways. And the whole thing is that people will look at them and see they're really spiritual. Their life is about wanting people to pat them on the back and go, good job for them to gain pride through that. He says, don't do that. And then the next statement, he goes on in verses um, 7 and 8 of chapter 6 of Matthew. And he, and he, he contrasts the Pharisees with the pagans, those people who are not of the Jewish faith, and people of any other kind of um, outside of that faith, in the way that they would often be found praying. And the way they would pray is they'd come into their temples, they'd come into their places of worship, and what they would do is they would, they would go on with these long-winded prayers, babbling nonsensically, hoping that in their, in their display of doing that, they would somehow arouse the attention of God. And he says, don't pray like that. It's not about the way you look and the appearance and being spiritual. It's not about having to somehow do something so much so long that somehow God will pay attention to you. And so then you get to Matthew chapter 6 and you look at verse 9 and Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. So this whole prayer is a model and a demonstration of what it means to pray from your heart. And if you notice it, there's not a lot of words but is so rich in its meaning and content. So I'm going to ask us to stand together and we're going to pray this prayer. And as we pray it, I'm going to ask you to end at the part of evil. You're not going to do the doxology, but we're going to pray this first part, okay? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we also forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You may be seated. Now you're kind of going, going this doesn't feel complete. Right? Come on. You know, in, in Catholic and Anglican and also in Episcopalian and many what I call high church, more liturgical churches, when you pray this prayer, you don't pray those, that for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In fact, if you go, you'll probably be praying along and deliver us from evil, and you might go for yours, and Nelson, everyone's silent. And you're wondering maybe why. You, you may want to be wondering why. What you, all you need to do is you want to take a, a Bible that's in the pew before you. If you want to look at Matthew 6, there, there'll be a little footnote. There'll be a little footnote right after, but deliver us from the evil one, or deliver us from evil. And that footnote basically says this. In many of your Bibles, um, as you look at it, 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 it adds these words. It reads like, Late manuscripts will add, for yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. And it means that the earliest manuscripts didn't have this ending. Although the doxology is found in various forms of manuscripts, in some of the earlier manuscripts, scholars are believing right now that as you read Matthew, you'll come to Matthew and what Matthew just really had in the original text. Even though we don't have his original document, the closest ones to Matthew don't have that. And so you kind of go, oh, that's kind of... That may make you worried a little bit. 
And it really shouldn't, because what happened was the early church, when they began to use these in, in the setting of the church, um, as these would be transcribed down, a scribe would just kind of put in the side that, and then it would get transcribed eventually, possibly into another. And, and you might go, well, how do I know then what, I, what I'm reading here is really from God? And, and I just want to, what I wanted to do, this isn't really part of the three points of the message. This is just kind of some stuff to help you understand, I think, how important it is of what's happening in, the, in, in scholarship today so that you're not afraid when you hear people say, well, you can't trust the Bible. That's baloney. Uh, seriously, honestly, folks, there is no book that has been more scrutinized, that has been studied, that has looked at historical and has gathered the, the manuscripts, has gone through all of it in such scrutiny that when we look at what we have, and what I love about the Bible, it's so honest, it, 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 it's so transparent, it doesn't try and put something in here that isn't. I mean, it, it just says, here's what's, here's what's going on, here's what we understand with the manuscripts. So if you read a Bible and it does have it, you'll understand it's maybe on one of the manuscripts that isn't as early. And, and, I, and I love the way God works. This doxology is probably a part of the worship of the church. Because, you know, when you pray this as a, as a church, it kind of feels a little bit strange to stop right at evil, right? Because you, you, you naturally want to, what I believe is the context, is focus once again your attention back on God. And that's what the early church did. New Testament scholar Don Carson, who is um, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which is a part of our free church school. I've got to tell you, I have in the last few years been more and more grateful for the incredible education that school has given me than the scholars that have imported in my life. Anyway, that's just, I don't know, that came to my mind. Anyway, the doxology, he says, itself is theologically profound and contextually suitable and was no doubt judged especially suitable by those who saw in the last three petitions a veiled allusion to the Trinity, which is kind of interesting. Those last three requests about the bread and the sins and and then goes into the temptation. He says the Father's creation and providence provides our bread. So you see, look at the Father. He goes on, he says the Son's atonement secures and provides our forgiveness. And then that third request is kind of interesting. It's it, the Spirit's indwelling power assures our safety and triumph. So you have this kind of threefold thing. And so in a sense, when you we look at this, it says it's the kingdom and the power and the glory. You see this kind of Trinitarian formula also at the end of its, of its prayer. And so whether Jesus said it or not, the early church put this in there. It was very important in worship. So we're going to take a look at it because I think it's very important to this prayer. It's critical. You understand how research, though, is working. And, 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 and as I said, there's no book that scrutinizes this more than, than, the, than people who do with the Bible. I was personally surprised by the scientific work they're doing currently on the Bible today. It's, it's amazing to me, in the last 50 years, some of the work they're doing now with computers and, and with laser scanning and, and, and all kinds of things such as that. I mean, it's just amazing the work they're doing on, on the Bible so that um, we understand it fully. I... I had asked the elders um, a couple, about a year and a half or so ago, and probably the last couple of years, and I said, you know, I, I really want to study, one of the things I really want to study is this whole, the role of women in leadership and, and what the Bible has to say about it, because that's a question that we as a church have had some people ask, and we're kind of working through it and, and trying to understand. And I said, what I want to do is, is meet with about three or four other people who are spiritually mature, scholastically and ac- academically trained, and I want to go through every passage in the Bible. I mean, I've read secondary sources, I've read some of the primary stuff, but I never actually just, I want to be right up to date with what's going on. 
And so we've been meeting for about a, a year, and it's been really kind of an interesting process. And as the process has gone along, we've been reading some of the scholastic stuff that's coming out in, in journals today. And, and, and some of the questions have come up, and I've been able to, because of the relationship, like talk to one guy who on one side, Wayne Grudem, and ask him questions, and another guy named Philip Payne, been able to actually email and be in correspondence with him, which has been really kind of interesting. And, and so Philip Payne writes me back, and then he, he says, I'll send you something. And he says, you know, I... He said, but don't share the findings because this hasn't been published yet in the journal. So I'm right here, so I'm not going to share the findings, but I'll read the title. The title is um, Vaticanus Distigma Obelus Symbols of Added Text, including 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35. And I read the title and I said, how am I going to share findings? I can't even understand what the title's about. And then beyond that, he asked me, he goes, you know, it'd be really kind of, you know, I'd really appreciate it, Kevin, if you would um, read through this and, and give me some critical responses to what I've written here. And I read the, through the thing, it took me like 20 days. Um, and I had one, I did have a critical insight. I found a spelling error. I felt really good about that. And you're asking, like, why am I saying all this? Because when, in this document, one of the things they're doing is they're actually looking at manuscripts that go way back and they're taking scanners they're actually being able to see the imprint to see that if this, did this scribe write this notation they're, they're doing so much work I say all this because you need to know if you want to do the work you can read like Don Byerly has books on it you can read Lee Strobel you can read Josh McDowell I did a series this last fall called The Word if you want to do the work if you have any question about the accuracy authenticity of this word you can go to the research on it we're not going to take time to do it but I want you to know there is no book in the, in the whole world that is being scrutinized like this and again and again they're coming back and going it's accurate what you have and what you hold in your hands you can trust that God wants you to use for faith in your practice the question I had as I was writing this is, is is it more than just in our hands? Is it in our hearts? I'm not just saying even in our heads. Because that's what Jesus wanted. And I say that because there's no, there's no culture throughout history that has more access to the word of God than we do today. And people don't even bring Bibles to church anymore. You just take your little phone. And, and I, I'm not sure whether you're playing games on it or not, but I'm, I'm praying and trusting you're looking at the word of God. It's amazing to me, what we don't realize is what God wanted was this word to get into our hearts. And it's really interesting, you know, that a Jewish um, a, a rabbi would look for students in the prerequisite, just one of the first prerequisites for their training was the ability to have memorized the whole Old Testament. And that's why when Jesus chose a bunch of fishermen, which I call B-squad people, you know, they, didn't, they, didn't, they weren't the A-squaders. People were really surprised. And you might be really surprised, going, wow, they memorized the whole Old Testament. That's incredible. Well, you know, it really isn't in an oral culture. In an oral culture, what they've been finding is that people were able to memorize huge amounts of material. But now we've changed to a written culture. And we don't really use the mind in the same way. You don't use the muscle, you lose it. If you never even used it, you'll never have it, right? And, and now we're moving from a writing culture to a, to, I don't know what we're going to become next. I'm sure it'll have some impact. I only say this, not in any way to, for us to be shamed, but just to say, this word is accurate. Don't let these things worry you. If you want to do the work you need to, then do it. And then understand this. What's really important is that it gets in your heart. 
the word of God is living and active, can bring about life change and can make you a life changer. Okay, that's all just to kind of go. So now we're moving to this. So the, the prayer begins, and he begins with these word abinu, which is just a possess. It's just a using the possessive form of the word Abba, which means daddy. It's our daddy, our daddy who fills the heavens. So he begins with his attention on God, and he says, God, I can't believe how incredibly big you are and how close you are. I can't believe how, in, how wonderful your rule is, and we'd love it to be like that here on earth the way it is in heaven. And then he goes into three requests. Those three requests are, are requests that he has um, uh, with regard to his own personal need. And I should just mention this too. When he says our father, and, and when Jesus uh, t- uh, titles it that way, you need to understand that in the Old Testament time, that wasn't a very, that, you didn't say that. In fact, in the Old Testament time, if you look in the Old Testament specifically, the fatherhood of God isn't a central theme in the Old Testament. It's used always as analogy, like the children of the Heavenly Father. They didn't, the, the Old Testament Jew did not speak to God directly as their father. In fact, they wouldn't even say the whole name. All we know is the, the, when the words Yahweh we say or the word Jehovah, which is the word for God, it's, it's just the, it's the consonants in the Hebrew of Y, which we use in transliterate H-W-H. We don't even know what the vowels are. We're just guessing at it because they wouldn't directly say his name. So Jesus comes along and he says, guys, call him your dad. And they're offended because some, you know how people can get really, like, Jesus, my buddy, and, you know, there's no sense of his sovereignty and in, in in, in how holy and great he is. Jesus was being labeled as being a guy who just doesn't think of the sovereignty of God. His opponents didn't like this. You're just too familiar with it. You, you, you act like he's your dad. So here is the context. He goes through his requests, and then Jesus, and what the church wants to do is address our focus back upon God. And that's what this doxology is. It's a reminder that we're to live a God-centered life. As we leave prayer, our life is to be centered on him. And so in three ways, he talks about being what I call being kingdom-driven, power-yielded, and glory-giving. And a God-centered person is what I call kingdom-driven. It affirms that our dad is the one who rules the kingdom. And it's not about building our kingdom. It's not about our personal kingdom. It's not about our personal agendas. It says we get up every morning, we begin the day, and, we, and, and part of the end of that prayer is, oh yeah, this is all about your stuff, God. It's about your agenda today, and I want to place my life into your agenda. I was um, asked one time to do a series on, on a, called the, uh, to develop a series of talks for the church called the Purpose Driven Church, which was the time the book Purpose Driven Life came out by Rick Warren, and, and I was thinking, okay, I could do that, and I was praying about it, and I felt uneasy about it, and as I was praying about it, I, and, and, and actually it was really reading God's word in my quiet time, I kept noticing again and again, it's all about the kingdom of God, and the word kept coming to me, kingdom driven. It's kingdom driven. You're not supposed to speak about the purpose driven life of church. You're supposed to speak about the kingdom driven church. And so I read the gospels. Jesus was talking about it. I read through the book of Acts. That seems to be what Luke keeps talking about, and then I, I read about and Paul and what he has to say. In fact, in the last two verses of Acts 28, as the church is kind of coming, we're seeing the end of it in, in Acts, the history of the church being written about. It ends with these two verses in chapter 28, verse 30 and 31. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house. This is in Rome. He's on house arrest, so he had an ankle bracelet, you know. Um, and he welcomed all who came to see him. And he proclaimed the kingdom of of God because he was kingdom driven and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ because you hear again and again Jesus saying let me tell you what the kingdom's like and so it's really going to be important that we understand what it means when we say yours is the kingdom 
And I realized as I prayed this, the real purpose-driven church, if we're a purpose-driven church, we will be about the kingdom. If you're a purpose-driven life, you will be about the kingdom. So what does the kingdom mean? We're basically just saying that we lived in a certain kingdom, and in this kingdom we didn't realize it, but we thought we were the ones in control. We thought we were the ones that were making ourselves, and, and we thought that the, we were, and, and really what we were doing is we were living according to ourselves, and there was another master, there's a different king, there's a different lord. It was, a, it was the kingdom of darkness. And then at a certain point, we come into conviction. We understand that we have been apart from God. We understand that our selfishness and our sin offends not just God and his holiness, but actually hurts one another and hurts ourselves. And, and you come to realization, you repent, and you say, I, I no longer want to live in this kingdom. I don't want, I'm, I want to get off the throne of my own heart. I want to transfer and put you, Jesus, on the throne of my heart. I want you to be the king because you're the one who, who um, is the Lord. You're the rightful master. You're the one who leads. I want to live in your kingdom now. There's this transfer it takes place which Colossians talks about. Colossians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 says this, for Jesus rescued us or, or God rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins because there's a new lord, there's a new master. That's what it means to move. That's what it, when you're saying yours is the kingdom, what you're you're not saying mine's the kingdom. I'm the one building it. You're saying I'm here to be driven to do the things. My agenda as I set it, as I go through this week, as I wake up in the morning, as I spend time with you, as I go through different times in my life when someone confronts me with sin, I, I realize this has got to be God's agenda, not mine. And so we, we we pray yours, Dad, is the true and rightful kingdom that drives all my life and decisions. John Orberg writes it like this, like it or not, we are all little kingdom builders. We want to make our families, our work, our friends, and sometimes even our churches into little kingdoms under our control. We want life to be about our agendas, our wants, and our needs. And some people are bold and obvious about this, and others are much more stealthy and subtle. He continues, Jesus is inviting us to recognize every day that another kingdom is at work in this world that may not be as visible or look as impressive to human eyes, or seem as urgent. But it is the most important kingdom of all, and we may wonder from time to time whether God's kingdom is going to be really the kingdom that lasts and is the last standing one, but it will be. So we pray yours is the kingdom, not mine. That's what a God-centered person is like. That's why I think this doxology is so important. A God-centered person is also what I call power-yielded. We end this prayer affirming the fact that we are yielded to God's power. Every Wednesday, the first month, the first Wednesday of the month, for now, probably, four, probably five years or so, um, we've made a commitment as a church that we will come together and we will pray. And we will make, in, in a sense, put a stake in the ground that says, God, what happens here this month is because that you are present and you, and it's through your power, we can have great programs, we can do all kinds of things, we can have all kinds of dreams, all kinds of intentions, we can use all our abilities, but we know that the things that last for this kingdom are the things that you do, and we know that comes out of prayer. So I'm driving to church 5.30 this Wednesday morning, and I'm thinking to myself, will anybody be here? Because um, so I'll just, you know, usually get, you know, we'll, we'll have sometimes 6 to 15 people at 6, which is pretty cool. I'll maybe get 2 to 3 people on noon on, on, on the first Wednesday a month, and, and then we'll maybe have about 10 to 15 people in, in the evening. So I'm thinking, I'm driving here, I'm thinking, oh, it's the summer, you know, it's going to be probably hard if people come. And I had this, I can't tell you whether it was my voice or the voice of God, but this thought where it said, Kevin, would you do this? if no one showed up. And I had one of those kind of heart check moments and I then, as I just thought, I said, yes, I will. Because for me, this is a spiritual practice. 
It's a wonderful opportunity for me once a month to come before you and to a, for a body of people. And, and I've heard sometimes people go, oh, I, just, I don't know your heart, Kevin. Come to these things. You can't pray without hearing a person's heart. And, and, and so I just had this sense. I go, you know what? This isn't about even the church. is about me. You know, I just, it's about saying, God, this is your body, your place. It's about your power being operative. Now, I have to share with you, we all have power. We all have abilities. We all have things that we can give. And, and the whole key here is to understand when I said power yielded, it means that there's a power greater than us. Well, we get fooled into thinking that we're self-made. We get fooled into thinking that somehow it, it's what we do that makes the difference. And this whole prayer ends with this sense of us understanding that it isn't. It's about God. It's almost as silly as, you know, have you ever... You know, as a parent, I, I always felt so inadequate when you'd have to do these projects with your kids and, you know, and, and they're supposed to do it. And our projects always looked like our kids did it. I, I just am not real crafty and great with tools or any of that. Cause I mean, I have trouble screwing light bulbs in correctly. Anyway, so I do these things with my kids and, and the kids would get pretty good grades because the teacher said, well, I was totally the kid who did that. I mean, some of you guys, you know, you put some really good things together. Or maybe it's a meal, like at Thanksgiving, and everyone's kind of going and making the meal together. But little Susie, you know, little eight-year-old Susie's there helping, and she's making something. And then we get there, and they go, well, Susie made that. And we all go, oh, Susie, that's wonderful. But we all know there was a greater power at work in putting that thing together. That's really what this prayer is about. Do you know that the very air you breathe, you have the mechanism, you have the ability, you have those things, but, and you can breathe, but the very air you breathe is because of God. So every moment you take a breath is an affirmation that it's your power. And so we kind of say, God, it's, it's your kingdom. Let us be kingdom driven. God, let us be power yielded. We agree with Jesus when he says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If man remains in me and I in him, He'll bear much fruit. That's kind of a cool thing. Then he says this to make sure that we get it because we all are so power not yielded. We are so power self-made. He says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. So do you need God's power in your life? Are there places and situations in your life that you're concerned about? Do you lack the strength needed to restore and heal a broken relationship? Right now you're just going, but I just, I don't know. I, I, God. Do you have a friend or a, a family member who needs power beyond what they can muster? Are you struggling at night with worry and fear and concerns? Do they keep you up at night? And if you answer yes to any of these questions, the answer is not probably in trying harder to make it happen. The answer is just admitting, Father, yours is the power. Would you come with me little Kevin, to create something I can't do on my own. Would you participate with me in this? Would you, is there an area that you need to say, God, I want you to participate with me right now? Think about it. Usually the, the thing that's, up, that's most on your agenda is the one where you're going to try to drive your kingdom with your power. And God might be saying right now to you, you know what, let go. Pull it back. Invite me in. Wait for my timing. He might be saying to you, you know what, yeah, that is a difficult situation and you need to move into that place. That relationship needs restoration and yeah, you better take some courage. I'll be with you, but yeah, it's a step of courage. You, you pull up the ability and I'll participate with you and you'll be surprised at what God can do. 
It's not just when you don't have power. It's when he's saying, you take your ability into some tough situations and exercise it and watch me show up. He, he takes the children of Israel as he comes to the, the, the Jordan River, and it's so funny when they're at the, you know, the, 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 the sea, he parts it, and they all go through, and it's, oh, you know, they're scared, and they get through, and they're all thrilled, and then they come to the Jordan River, and he goes, okay, you leaders, put your ankle, your in, ankle into the water, which is in flood season, and they're going, what? And he says, sometimes you have to step out in faith and let God's power work through you, because when they stepped in, the water parted. A God-centered person is glory-giving. It's possible actually to cry out and say, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and mine is the glory. We get, you know, kind of, because we love to grab the glory. You know, you could do all this stuff, and you're saying, God wins for your kingdom, and then you see God's power show up, especially when that happens, and you go, wow, isn't that neat? I've been praying for you, God. I've been praying for this sales thing, and it came through, and now you kind of go, and that little voice is going, boy, yeah, your winsomeness got that one. Or, you know, you, God, I really want to help you in your plane, you know, one of your kids are playing baseball, and you get the winning hit, yep. Yeah, glory to me. You know, it's just if we just do it, we grab glory. And that's why I think it's so interesting at the very end of the prayer, he looks, you know, and he says, look in my eyes and just tell me once again, it's all about who? It's about God. We're driven to do the things for the kingdom and we do it in the power of God as we cooperate with him in faith. And then as we do that, we see God show up and then we give him the glory. We're glory givers. We're glory givers. Yet it's a constant battle. That's why worship is so important. Worship isn't really just to come here on a Sunday and go, oh, I just got to get charged up again this week. No, it happens. But I hear people go, well, you know, these people, they're just into it for the experience. I go, really? We all are somewhat, right? Let's get honest. And yet it's more than that. When we come here to worship, it's a way for us to kind of get ourselves small and go, boy, God, you're big. It's all about you. The stuff that happened this week, as I've been living right now, I'm not going to be caught up in my circumstances that get me all fearful. I'm going to start being grateful. I'm going to start saying thanks to you because you're a big God and I'm going to give you the glory. And so, what I think is really interesting, if we're really honest about it, and I'll close with this, and that is, um, and Joel, if you want to come uh, and do your little band thing here. Um, <laughs> this little doxology at the end of the prayer is essential because we all have a kingdom problem. I, I can call you out all, and you can be mad at me, but that's the reality. Everything is about my kingdom, my power, my glory, because we have a tendency to live self-centered. We repent and we die of that, and God puts that off. He begins to change our trajectory, but we have this problem of um, getting off. You know, we just don't. We just keep going back. So I, I love how one author put this little story. He says one of the best commentaries on this complex topic is a book on political science theory by a well-known theologian, Dr. Seuss. In, in the book, you'll know it. It's called Yertle the Turtle. You may be familiar with it. It's not a tough read. You can actually read it in an evening. And in fact, you could read it and your kids might enjoy it. But it's a story about a little pond filled with little turtles who were ruled, or so they think were ruled by a king named Yertle. And one day, Yertle the Turtle King decides that his kingdom needs expanding. I'm king, he said, of all I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. So he began to stack turtles up to make himself a turtle throne. It's just what we do as people. We, we use our power instead of to help and lift people up. We like to, you know, we use them to sometimes get our agenda done. And so the king lifts his finger and a whole pond of turtles scramble to obey. First dozens, then hundreds. And they all exist for his sake, his kingdom, his power, and his glory. 
And atop his stone at last he can see for miles. I'm Yertle the turtle. Oh, marvelous me, for I am the ruler of all I see. Yertle thinks the stone is as secure as a throne can be. And if you think about it, I suppose it was in a way. But in the end, his throne turns out to be a turtle tower of Babel. And the turtle on the bottom did a plain little thing. He burped. And that burp shook the throne of the king. And today that great yurtle, that marvelous he, is king of the mud. That's all he can see. This is how self-made thrones always end up, folks. This is your agenda. Without God. It doesn't matter if they're human thrones or turtle thrones or any kind of throne. If it isn't a God-centered throne built on on his kingdom and, and through his power and for his glory. Just a little burp can topple it, you guys. That's it. The burp can be an illness. The little burp could be a downturn in the market dramatically. A little burp can be a rebellious child. A little burp can be a pink slip. A little burp could be the understanding that the romance is no longer in that relationship you thought. The little burp could be a rejection slip that maybe your kids got and you're more devastated than they are. I just want to say, what's the little burp that could bring that down in your life? You name the burp and it'll shake the throne built on anything but God. It always ends up in the mud. So I just ask you to think about what are the turtle thrones you're building? What at this moment do you need power for? And if you're like me, you probably like to sing as we do, your, you know, glory to God, to you be all glory. But the test is when you walk out of here, who's getting the glory in your life? When they look at your life, are people seeing you in the throne you're building? Or are they seeing Jesus? And are people being built, to, you know, built under you to make that throne? Or are you doing things like Jesus in the lives of people? Let's set them free to know and experience his love and his power.